for March 22nd, 2010, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 90, The GoBots of the Monsters. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. You know, it seems very loud when I say that and I'm sitting so close to you. When I'm at home with my, uh, with my little headset on, it is not nearly so bad as that. But, uh, headset or no, I am your host, Matthew Rather, joined live here in New York by two of our podcasters and, um, and via Skype by two of our other podcasters. So let us get uh, right into it because we are live streaming this with actual, um, with actual video of us for the first time. Hello! Wave back, chat room, and we um, uh, and we are also recording it, recording it live. So you know, apologies in advance for technical difficulties. Uh, eventually, we'll iron this sort of stuff out. But we are uh, we're just very excited to do it. With uh, oh, the chat room says hello, <laughs> hello, chat room. <laughs> Inmate, no, you are the nerds. Um, so, uh, so with the live nerds uh, here in the chat room, with the live nerds on Skype, with the live nerds on this video feed that you are watching in our Ustream video channel where we stream the show every Sunday at 9.15 Eastern, 6.15 Pacific, that we are always, um, that we are always about 20 minutes late with it as our, our, uh, uh, in, inveterate listeners can tell you. Is that the word I want? Inveterate. Um, the, the chat room will tell you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> can you get it? Can you get on that Wikipedia wise chat room? Uh, all right. So let us, uh, let us start in with the question of the week. We imagine that we'll talk a little bit about, um, 3d about the third dimension. Dimension, dimension, dimension. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to amuse ourselves. Um, so we're going into the so we, we are going into the question of the week. What is your favorite other than 3D or maybe 3D if it's your favorite? What is your favorite movie gimmick uh, of all time? Uh, favorite movie gimmick? Starting here uh, to the right, um, it is Matthew Blinky. First of all, I'd like to apologize to Mr. Fenzo for bumping you out of first alphabetical order. I know that that, that throws off your entire week. Um, <laughs> it is, uh, without a doubt, the Honey, I Shrunk the Audience ride at Walt Disney World, uh, which I believe just this month is, is being supplanted by uh, Captain EO. They're going old school, you know, in, in memory of Michael Jackson. But this is the, the ride, sort of widely hated uh, because it replaced the sort of... Uh, uh, George Lucas produced Francis Ford Coppola directed masterpiece that is Captain EO. But the idea <laughs> is that it's a it's a 4D experience because not only does it have 3D glasses, it has various effects built into the seat to augment the experience. My favorite being at one point, uh, uh, Rick Moranis has a machine which duplicates uh, rats. I don't know. I, I don't think it was supposed to duplicate rats. And yet, uh, as is so often the way it goes with Rick Moranis' machines, it does. And then the rats sort of run in 3D towards the audience. And then the bottom of the seats are rigged with some sort of tickling device that sort of tickles your ankles. Um, and I think they actually do time it so that like it starts at the front of the auditorium and moves back row by row. So you actually sort of get the squeeze. That that 
that go with it, you know, as you're watching the 3D rad sort of pour into the audience. And I think, I don't know, I think all movie theaters should A, have ankle ticklers, and B, directors <laughs> should find an excuse, no matter what the movie is, to have something tickle the audience's ankles so they could use that effect. I could sell this ring and save two Jews. <laughs> <laughs> I could sell this car and save ten. <laughs> and uh, and chiming in from Bad Tasteville, uh, otherwise known as his his basement apartment in beautiful Cambridge, Massachusetts, it is Peter Fenzel. Hey, how's it going? The bad taste tonight is a sweet bad taste diet and W root beer. Well, I love that. If they sponsor the podcast, I would be a happy man. All right, so so my favorite uh, movie gimmick is a little bit simpler. I love diegetic surround sound. I love it. I love it when, it, for reasons inside the movie, for some for some purpose, uh, a noise has to come from behind the audience, or like to the left of the audience, or to the right of the audience, and it's just worked into a regular movie. My favorite example of this is uh, in in X Men, the original X Men movie, which if you saw it in the theater, not the original original, but like. You know, the Patrick Stewart, Hugh Jackman, uh, X-Men movie. Uh, if you saw it in the theater, when Wolverine wakes up and, and Professor X is speaking to him in his mind, uh, the audience hears him, oh, I'm over here. Like, I'm over here. I'm over on the right. I'm over on the left. And uh, I just get such a kick out of that. That's just hilarious and awesome. It's, it's, it's so simple, but it does so much. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of that sort of diegetic surround sound. Pete, do you remember, I love the, it. Do you remember the THX uh, trailer that was um, the little robot that flies around the theater fixing the THX logo? No, I don't remember that. Oh, so it was, it was the THX logo. It came up with the big chord. I forget what that chord is called. Deep blue or something. No, it's called like the deep tone. Yeah. I think it deep is. Tone. Deep tone. Yeah. It's copyrighted. Do not use that chord. <laughs> <laughs> we won't use it on the podcast. Don't attempt to recreate it vocally or in any other way. Um, <laughs> I'm not here to live by your rules, all right, Blinky? <laughs> but it's... Um, <laughs> so it um right, but then it breaks down in the middle, and a little a little THX fixing robot flies out, uh, examines the busted THX logo, and then flies off screen. But then you hear him on the surround sound flying around the theater, uh, fixing the THX, and it starts um it all it it uh, it it uh, starts up again as though the robot has fixed everything. Thank God all is well in the world of THX. Uh, and uh, inmate in the chat room says they've also done cattle stampeding. Through the theater. So, yes, it is indeed gimmicky. Now, on the right of me, as you look at the... Uh, oh, no, I guess it's the left of me. As you look at the, uh, the video, uh, this pink-shirted man here is Mr. Joshua McNeil. Favorite movie gimmick, Josh? Hot girls in action movies. Mm. Uh, <laughs> often you find that, uh, you know, there's really no purpose to have a female character in a given action film. And yet they will invariably work one in. And uh, it's just, I mean, they're almost non-diegetic, actually. Thank you for that word, Pete. Uh, oh, sure. That goes on my fridge today. The, uh, but I always find that just sort of amusing. And, like, I wonder sort of at what point in the script writing production process someone's like, nope, we need Megan Fox. <laughs> I think my, my favorite example of that is Denise Richards as the nuclear scientist yep. and what is it, yeah. The World Is Not Enough? Christmas or, Jones. No, yeah. it's, it's, it's Tomorrow Never Dies or something. But yeah, it, yeah, no? yeah. 
One, one of those. Together. One of those sort of mid-period Pierce Brosnan movies. And I, I feel like the fact that they made her the nuclear scientist is almost like breaking the fourth wall. It's almost acknowledging what a ridiculous cliche the sort of hot chick worked shoehorned into the action movie is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some pretty bad ones. Like, there's some pretty freaking bad ones. I'm trying to think about. Uh, well, I, the first one that came to mind for me is the transporter, but I guess she's the center of the plot. She just doesn't do anything for the whole movie. The, uh, uh, when, when she's in the trunk of the car, she comes out, and it's like she can't act or talk. I think. Uh, oh, Paris, Mission Impossible Paris Two. On this, but Mission the, Impossible uh, Two. That woman, she does nothing. What? Transformers. The uh, the the. Uh, NSA worker, the British person who works yes. for the American uh, mm. Secret Services. I think she's Australian. Is that okay? <laughs> so she's clearly not a U.S. citizen, which is actually the first requirement to work at the National Security Agency. <laughs> I believe. Uh, so that was that my was, favorite example. That wasn't me who touched on that. Was uh, Shauna, I think. Oh, but all right. Yes. yes. For attributing in a fantastic piece entitled "Something About People." <laughs> Why strong female characters are bad for women. That voice that, that voice that we heard is back in Beantown. It's Mr. John Parrish. What up, what up, what <laughs> up. All right, so without a question, my all-time favorite movie gimmick is when one of the major actors dies before the movie is released. Because you, you know that... <laughs> You know they timed that just just right. I mean, that's the spike equilibrium right there. <laughs> several, <laughs> several, uh, several recent examples. There's uh, Heath Ledger in that Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus and the uh, the Dark Knight thing as well. There's Bernie Mac and Solman, uh, Bruce Lee, Enter the Dragon, Oliver uh, Reed and Gladiator. Yes, Oliver Reed, Gladiator. Thank you, uh, Aaliyah in that that terrible vampire movie that I'm. Queen of the Damned. Yeah, Queen of the Damned, and, <laughs> and of course, and of course, the the original James Dean in in Rebel Without a Cause. Mm. So, I mean, in in some cases, it, it's great because the gimmick can go either way. In some cases, it provides this ironic and touching, or this touching capstone on their career, like uh, like Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight, for instance, or James Dean or Bruce Lee. And in many cases, it's just a a regrettable. Sort of downward spiral, like uh, like Peter Sellers, as we're being pointed out in the uh, chat room here, or uh, Raul Julia in Street Fighter, or of course uh, John Candy in Canadian Bacon. Now, John, uh. does anyone else besides me remember when Marlon Brando died? There were all these reports of the press that his last role was he did the voice of some sort of female cartoon bug in an animated film they were just starting. And, you know, like, animated films take, like, five years to do, so, like, there's still a chance that we have not yet seen Marlon Brando's final performance. Uh, <laughs> I, I do not recall that... Uh, do not recall that, uh... That rumor would have... It wouldn't have been that, that terrible... What was that, that animated movie that was one of the, the worst animated movies reviewed of all time? Like, Delgo, or... Yes, you're thinking of Delgo, yeah, yeah, with Freddie Prinze Jr., right? Yes, Delgo, that terrible, terrible movie. Like, even yeah. even by the standards of animated action children's movies, pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. All right. I am the last, uh, I'm the last one to go, as usual. My name's starting with W. W-R-A-T-H-E-R. Uh, it's, it's been a sad life of always being at the end of the, at the end of the alphabet. Um... Last, last for everything in school. Last to receive my diploma. Um, last in the hearts of your countrymen. <laughs> <laughs> but I, um, 
You know, so I'm surprised that that uh, the two people before me went for marketing gimmicks, and I was just thinking technological gimmicks. And so I, I the one that I want to uh, pick. Not because it's stupid, like Smell-O-Vision or, um, you know, Cinema 4D or, you know, whatever it's... Uh... Including the miracle of time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I always thought it was a misnomer yeah. that they called that, like, Honey, I Shrunk the Audience in Disney 4D because it's like, you know, every movie is in 4D in the sense that, like, it takes time to elapse. Well, if it's being projected, like, if it's turning in the reels of a projector, then it's be existing in 4D. If it's sitting on a shelf, then it exists in only 3D uh, to a certain experiential degree, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, no, uh, not a stupid gimmick. Mine was uh, is actually a, a cool gimmick, and the cool gimmick is Cenorama, uh, which was a three camera process, uh, which was a, a, a three camera process where they would have uh, three camera shooting a scene at the same time right next to each other to create a super wide image so that there was no overlap between the cameras one left off right where the other began and uh, it, there, you had to have a specially equipped theater uh, to show it the most famous of which was called the Cenorama Dome in Hollywood and uh, only a few movies were ever shot because of the huge technical the hurdles in making a film this way but one of them was The Wild Bunch uh, If It Moves Shoot It and um and uh, it's just, if you go into it, it's like, I guess Disney does things like that now with like a 360 degree movie. I, you kind of have to be a theme park. You have to be like uh, an amusement thing to make it worthwhile now. But to go and like have the, the, the screen stretch across your whole field of vision width-wise and to have an aspect ratio that's like, you know, five times as wide as it is tall, that, you know, that was pretty cool. And, Isn't and it, wasn't the hustler the hustler in Cinerama? Is that? that you know, a, I don't know. That was a thorough waste of Cinerama. If so, oh. like a pool table can be easily shot by a single camera. That's true. <laughs> it's like maybe a snooker table. They need Cinerama for. for ra- rather, when you when you called out the Wild Bunch, you mean like Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch? Yes. Really? Okay. Because I've I've seen that I've seen that on on home theater and I've seen it on the big screen as well. And there's nothing. I mean, there, there's nothing in, no shot in there that I can think of that looks particularly, like, unnaturally broad. So wouldn't showing this, this weird three-camera vision, like, what would that do on a regular screen? What, well, what am I, I missing? Remat, I think they remat the, um, I think they remat the movies. Like, the dirty little secret of letterboxing is that a 35-millimeter camera actually captures a frame that's about square, so that looks like your old standard definition television. And then in post, it's matted down to that, you know, uh, uh, 1.66 or 2.35, right? Or they shoot it through an anamorphic lens so that, like, when they develop it, it's square, but it looks smushed. And so then you have to project it through an anamorphic lens. That's, so that would be a process like um, Cinemascope, right? Which was a really wide, which was almost 1 by 3. I think it's 285. Um, is the purpose of that to remove boom mics from the frame? <laughs> well, yeah, actually, actually, it's funny. If you go to a theater that does not uh, mask the movie right at the top and the bottom, sometimes you actually will see in, an, uh, in a movie theater a boom in the frame. But yeah, you can bring the boom, actually, you can capture the boom on film so long as it does not uh, cross the notional line where you're going to cut the movie into. Mm. So... 
I, and, I bet anyway. you in this case of, of the Wild Bunch, I mean, obviously there weren't many theaters equipped to watch it that way. So I bet you when they shot it, they did all the compositions sort of keeping track of uh, what would look good. And, and you know, like, like 10 years ago when they were shooting movies, they would um, – you know, you know, you'd have a crop marks in your in your viewfinder that would show what it would look like on a on a four three television set and what it would look like on a sixteen nine television set because you knew that you would be you would be doing a pan and scan version. You actually now, can so see much. that you can see that now if you just look at the compositions in high def television shows. There's always it's either left right or center. They're always set up so that they'll work in four by three. You know? Right. As a, like the over-the-shoulder shot, you just you just uh, crop out a little bit of the shoulder, you know, and you you cut in the empty space on the other side, and and you have your your same shot. But I didn't I didn't um, uh, I didn't answer John's question. My my answer to John's question was I don't know the specific history of putting that movie into uh, into four by three or into like a, a more conventional theatrical aspect ratio, but. Uh, I think there was probably enough visual information, and they probably planned it in such a way that they could do it easily. Basically, what? what oh, that this is what this is Cinerama. I've heard about that. Don't they show this is Cinerama like annually somewhere, like uh, as a really special event? I read about it in a book at some point. Um, it, that that's like a, a, a they shoot like a roller coaster, and you're like flying over the country, and like. Um, do, does this sound familiar to yeah, any of you does, guys? It does really well for for. Uh, Landscapes. It's from the '60s, right? Yeah, it's all these things. All these widescreen processes are born out of the time when television was on the rise, and uh, uh, film, like theatrical film, needed a way to distinguish itself. So they went wide. I mean, they went very wide and, and very grand. Uh, whereas television is a lot sort of smaller and more intimate, favor, yeah. favoring the close up and and st- stuff like this. But if you're you know if you're John Ford and you're shooting the the Searchers, that horizon stretching from you know end to end of a cinemascope frame is um, uh, is something that you just can't get on on television. Yeah, I think there there are actually three Cinerama uh, film uh, theaters still in uh, existence that are operating today, I believe. Cool. Um, what do they show? What is it? Uh, well, they show this is Cinerama, which is the, <laughs> the, the, the famous like intro to Cinerama movie. And, of course, they'll show like how the West was won or it's a Mad Men, Mad Men world or maybe something like that. two episodes of Everyone Loves Raymond right next to each other <laughs> once. Actually, it looks like one that closed in 1991 and it uh, closed its doors after showing Dances with Wolves for the last time. So in, I guess they kind in of... In Cinerama. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Pete, so what do you think about – how is this different from IMAX? Like talk about uh, – what were you going to ask? Oh, well, technically the way it's different from IMAX is that IMAX uses a single – camera. True IMAX uses a, a 70 millimeter piece of film though normally it would run top to bottom and the the, um, the frames would be uh, thin strips running down the piece of film. Uh, in IMAX they actually turn that 70 millimeter piece of film on its side and they shoot an image that's a lot more square but is huge and the images, the frames are, are stacked side to side to side to side uh, they're 70 millimeters tall and whatever, 100 millimeters wide. I'm sure the chat room can come up with the exact dimensions of, you know, of IMAX. Um, so that so that you're actually dealing with a negative that's huge compared with a 35 millimeter film negative. Right. Well, you have, you have four times as much visual information. Right. So exactly. Yeah, just physically, just right. just in terms of the physics of how much, uh, how much you can put on. But it's also a, a it's, it's also a different shape. 
is the key thing that if you watch if you watch the Dark Knight in IMAX, uh, in the the scenes that were shot in IMAX, you could actually see how they were taller yeah. than the, than the scenes that were shot in what is it two three five two three five probably yeah. yeah. But it's so it's um here's I mean here's the thing about it though IMAX has been licensing the IMAX name to uh, a digital projection system that's used in a lot of theaters, especially AMC theaters. Uh, that is not, in fact, IMAX. Oh, here IMAX is uh, uh, seventy millimeters by forty-eight and a half millimeters. Thank you, Chimp Chimp Three. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, right. So, um, so not everywhere that says it's IMAX is actually this like six-story tall yeah. IMAX thing. And th- this was a big sort of like uh, pet peeve of the blogosphere. I remember, I forget like when there was a certain. It, it might have been when the Dark Knight came out, and it was like we're going to see the Dark Knight IMAX. And, IMAX, and in fact, yeah. it's maybe like ten percent bigger than a normal movie screen. It's and it's like it's like it's very obviously not IMAX is like the size of like an office building and like the digital IMAX is like maybe the biggest movie theater they have in a normal multiplex right. but clearly not IMAX. It's normal, right. yeah. Right. You have to go to like a science museum or something. You a lot actually of the time really do because that's yeah. that's where they that's where they tend to have them. And you can um, if you do some googling for I love how we've become like a consumer protection a media consumer protection. Yeah, <laughs> but if you do some googling about what is real IMAX and what is fake IMAX. You'll um, come up with it, but this whole this whole topic of movie gimmicks came up because Pete, alone among us, saw Alice in Wonderland <laughs> this this weekend. Isn't that right, Pete? Yep. That's true, and that's a movie that has a tremendous amount of visual information uh, and a, a great lack of other sorts of information. <laughs> you, uh, so, Pete, just give us. I know. I know we don't really do reviews, but just just do your riff. Do do oh, what your okay. impressions were on this film. So here's the riff on Alice in Wonderland. The first thing to know is that it's. N- not Oz, it's Return to Oz. Yes. Uh, Alice goes back to Wonderland right before she's about to get uh, engaged, right? Uh, Matt, Matt, you know Return to Oz. Yeah. Is that what that is? If all you haven't seen it, it it's, it's a direct sequel to The Wizard of Oz from the 80s. It's, they're, they're actually, they think Dorothy is insane and she's about to undergo electroshock therapy and she escapes <laughs> and she returns and the whole the whole city is, and I don't want to get off on a tangent, but it's terrible is what I'm saying. Why yeah. would, why, <laughs> it is, it is. Um, <laughs> why would we be afraid of getting off on a tangent on this show? I, I will say that I was terrible Terrified by that by that movie as a child. It was very dark. So is, yeah. is the next thing we're supposed to expect Alice in Wonderland like the Wiz version? <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, it's very much the Return to Oz version. I mean, it's done by Tim Burton, uh, so it's pretty dark. But it has the similar idea where in the first Wizard of Oz and in the, in the Alice in Wonderland, sort of the conventional interpretations in the book, it's about a young girl who's kind of confronting a world. That's a reflection of her own world, but there are things that don't make sense, which raise the question in her life of whether she's going to accept reality as it's presented to her, including her sort of role as a girl, or whether she's going to sort of hold on to her imagination and believe in things that are possible, um, which is more pronounced as a theme in Alice in Wonderland than, than in The Wizard of Oz, but it's still sort of along those lines. You know, are you going to be either a free thinker or a free spirit, or are you going to basically do all the crazy things that people tell you to do? And then in both Return to Oz and in this Alice in Wonderland movie, we revisit the protagonists when, they've, when they're approaching womanhood uh, and the sort of um, the constraints of womanhood uh, as embodied in Return to Oz with this sort of Tennessee Williams-esque kind of madness uh, that's, you know, hysteria, right? This sort of like, uh, this, this ungodly, um, his, hysterical oppression of women. Um, and, and then in the case of Alice in Wonderland, it's like Victorian society and getting married to somebody she doesn't love and, and having to subordinate herself 
um, and her intelligence to a culture that isn't really interested in leveraging it for the reasons that she would want to leverage it. And it's like, are you re-upping for another tour of duty and this sort of freedom of will, and what does that mean? Um, so take that idea and, and put five minutes of it at the beginning of the movie and five minutes of it at the end of the movie, and then just like fill the middle with a whole series of totally pointless action sequences that are just like all sorts of crap is like throw it at the screen like all the time. Uh, I'll say this. About the time where they gave the Mad Hatter a giant broadsword is about the time where I wanted to walk out of the <laughs> like, like, like it look like it's like, a, like, like Lord of the Rings for kids. Yeah, it, it, it's more like Narnia for retarded people. Um, <laughs> I mean, I should say that because the word retarded is not the kind of thing that you should say anymore. No, I mean, it's very pretty. You get the sense that a lot of the scenes, that Tim Burton paid a lot of attention to the visual style of the movie. I got the sense that certain scenes and set pieces are actually homages to past Tim Burton movies. So, like, she steps through the door, right, after she shrinks down, and she emerges from a door that's kind of hovering in space and is oddly shaped that feels very much like Beetlejuice. And she looks out, and there's all... You homage to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she looks out, and there's all these topiary animals, which reminded me of Edward Scissorhands. And then, um, of course, maybe this is your personal favorite as well as mine, the, the tea party takes place in the foot of a giant windmill that looks like it's been decimated by some sort of explosion. Uh, um, which is, of course, the Sleepy climactic Hollow. scene in Sleepy Hollow. Another Tim Burton movie. What so, yeah, so so I saw it in 2D. It's very clearly made in 3D. There are lots no, of sequences that I think... actually, though. It was made oh, in 2D not... and converted to 3D. Oh, really? Oh, because I was assuming that that's why so many of the scenes didn't make any sense. No, there I mean, are a lot of movies that are sort of coming out now that were originally planned. Like, the new Joss Whedon movie has apparently been in the can for a year, and they held mm-hmm. on to it to convert it to 3D just because of Final Destination 3D or something. Uh, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine. But, um, well, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you this much. Like, the Jabberwocky, you know how the Jabberwocky shows up in Alice in Wonderland is this. It's a diegetic poem. There's a third time we get to use the, the term today. Um, it's a poem that is in the story of Alice in Wonderland. Somebody reads it. Um, and it's, it's about how I can create the experience of a scary monster without actually using words in a representative way for the scary monster. I can make up nonsense words. Um, I can tell a story that doesn't really hang together in a logical way. But because of the way stories work, it still tells you the story of this heroic slaying of this monster. It's like an exercise in stretching the rational limits of your mind uh, and, and the power of interpretation uh, to resolve things in reality that aren't internally consistent. But in this movie, the, the Jabberwocky is a dragon that shoots lightning bolts out of its mouth. <laughs> um, and, and An Alice awesome has a dragon that shoots <laughs> awesome lightning bolts. Well, lightning bolts are awesome. The dragon is pretty subpar. But, but, uh, but yeah, and Alice has to, like, she's going to fight the dragon. And, of course, there's my favorite. There's a prophecy, and she's the chosen one, which doesn't make any sense because whatever, what she's chosen for and prophecy. Why is there a prophecy in Wonderland when everything is happening sort of crazy? Why does everything have to be about predestination when you have cats that have dissolving faces? You know, like it's, 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 and it's just large stretches of it. I went to the bathroom twice during this movie. I thought about going three times. Um, and when I thought that the person next to me was really unhappy because she wanted to leave, it turns out she was really unhappy because I kept interrupting her when she was trying to watch the movie. So that was a kind of a that was kind of a lose lose on my. I mean, without without revealing identities, was that your date or was that just some random person? Well, neither. It's a it was a friend of mine. Oh, it was okay. it, it, it was one of those things where like you know how I always used to say when I'm past twenty three, like it doesn't matter whether it's a date or not. 
right? Like if it's if it's adults and they're single and they're out together. Uh, watching a movie or eating dinner, like let's not worry about whether you check the little box next to do you like me, like me, or do you just like me. Um, like yeah. let's just like freaking enjoy our meals, and if something happens, something happens. Do you, uh, that's, but no, that's how I got my uh, that's how I got my girlfriend to start dating me. Actually, was I I, I wrote her a note uh, in all capital letters that says do you like me? Check one. Uh, colon, and then there was a box that said yes and a box that said no and 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 uh, fortunately she, she checked yes. Yeah. You know what's a good trick is you make the yes box bigger than the no box. It's a psychological gimmick I like to use. No, you know you, we do it in, in corporate America all the time. You say like agree strongly, agree, like don't disagree, <laughs> like the lowest possible choice is like somewhat ambivalent or you like have you know, a have, have, call that asks the Americans if they like you. <laughs> <laughs> If I can, if I can get back to Tim Burton for a moment, although I, I, I hope everyone, everyone here likes me, uh, check check yes or no. Is, yep. like, has like. Tim Burton sort of sort of given up on uh, on making original movies and just set himself to remakes? Because looking at his last handful of films, we got Planet of the Apes, yeah. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Sweeney Todd. Alice in Wonderland, and there's that that persistent and and nagging rumor I've been hearing that he's he's going to tackle the Adams family next, which would which would really just be disheartening because I think between the Raúl Julia Angelica Houston movie yeah. and between the original TV series, I think the Adams family has been explored in every direction that can well, profit. Let's talk with the musical that's coming out like next month. Oh my God! Shut up! Yeah, well, no, shut Judy up! Is, shut uh, up! Is, uh, shut up! Shut up! Ah! <laughs> I mean, the like problem, the problem with damn. Tim Burton doing the Adams Family is that that's like putting butter on the butter, you know? <laughs> <laughs> See, I don't, I don't, I, I disagree with you there, rather, because I've always, I've always found Tim Burton's darkness to be a little sort of goofy, happy, silly, you know. Goth, but in the in a very accessible goth sort of darkness. Whereas I found the Adams family at, kind of a, at their kind of best a hot to be, topic darkness. Yeah, thank you. That's that's the best way for it. A sort of hot topic darkness. Whereas Adams family at their best was a very like dark, sinister, sarcastic, sort of like bleeding edge black humor darkness to it. Where I don't I don't think Tim Burton would be. I think he'd be goofy and icky and squicky, but he wouldn't be as... Altogether ooky? As altogether ooky. I I, I never understood the Addams... Let's say that I was a television executive, and you have the idea for the Addams Family, and you have 30... And let's pretend that that I didn't know about the comic strip that it's based on. You have 30 seconds to explain what the hell the Addams Family is to me. Uh, They're the GoBots of the Munsters. (laughs) 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 We could do it if Raul Julia's around. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't even I don't even know how to how to I don't, well, it's probably it's not, not true because I think done. a lot of stuff about people than the monsters. Of course, the, the monsters really hate her. Her. I thought that I don't even know where that's the joke or whether your your summary is the joke or I don't, uh, ah I keep <laughs> discovering the joke and laughing at it more. It's ridiculous. Well, well uh, uh, so so here's so I understand what you're saying, Matt. I will say uh, to go back to Tim Burton. An important thing to remember about Tim Burton in terms of being an auteur is uh, Tim Burton is primarily a visual artist, I believe, by training, by dedication. Yeah. Uh, he was a set what set designer, costume designer, whatever. He has a back big in the exhibition Disney. at uh, MoMA right now in New York. 
Yeah, yeah. So he's he's primarily a visual artist, and he has a lot of uh, he has writer guys that work for him, um, who do a lot of the writing. I, I mean, I only know this because of that whole story that Kevin Smith tells in an evening with Kevin Smith about when he wrote the Superman movie, oh, yeah. which is just such a wonderful story that ends with Wild Wild West uh, and and the giant spider, the fiercest predator known to man. Um, but uh, because because they kept trying to make him put like fights where Superman fights an animal into the story because there were like 15 page stretches with no action sequences and it's like oh why John Peters was like why can't he fight a polar bear and it's like why would Superman fight a polar bear like Superman has no reason to fight a polar bear like like there's nothing a polar bear can do to threaten Superman uh, but it's like oh polar bear's the most fearsome predator known to man but anyway at the end of the story they take Kevin Smith's script to the Superman movie they give it to Tim Burton and Tim Burton is like okay my own guys will write this up so, so Tim Burton is, is not writing the screenplay to these movies, right? He's like, he's primarily like, wants to, he's about the look. Uh, and he directs it, uh, you know, obviously the storytelling is important, but uh, it makes sense that he wouldn't really care about the plots and might not be particularly interested in doing original plots. Uh, what he is interested in doing is, is original um, takes, like visual yeah. takes. Shakespeare takes. wasn't interested in doing original plots. Yeah, exactly. And Chimburn and Shakespeare have a lot in common because, you know, <laughs> they have this sort of mystery. <laughs> mysterious, dark, uh, ambiguous sexuality. Right. Wait, I no. Think, uh, I think Danny actually did the score for most of Shakespeare's plays. Sir <laughs> Daniel of the Elfman. The, um, I want to call out some, some chat room people. Uh, Chemistron says, uh, Fiercest Predator, have you forgotten Sharktopus already? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I cannot wait. I will be. I will be. I won't even TiVo it. I am going to watch Sharktopus with commercials and everything because I want to see it the second it's released. See, like Tim Burton would take Sharktopus and do Sharktopus over, and Sharktopus would just have like big bags under its eyes and have like really interesting interplay of light and shadow, and like that would be the point. And, and it wouldn't really be about whether sh- the entire Sharktopus story has been told already or not. And, and Sharktopus would also have this really like complicated backstory about its childhood and how it was neglected, well, you know, coming up. That, that's what led it to kill. Can we yeah. talk, can we talk about this a little bit? Can we talk about backstory? I, I forget whether we've done this on the, on the podcast before. Probably. Uh, but um, yeah. Tuka Yid, uh, T-U-K-A-Y-Y-I-D, um, in the chat room points out that they, they give Mad Hatter a backstory, that um, uh, Willy Wonka got a backstory, that there's, that there's a kind of psychological determinism, that there's a kind of like add in these childhood traumas, you know, mix, and suddenly you have Willy Wonka, or suddenly you have the Mad Hatter, or something like this. Is his backstory that the mercury he used to make hats drove him insane? Because <laughs> <laughs> I right. think he had that. That this is, you know, I think that this is, um, th- this is a weakness of our storytelling right now. And this is a reason that I was, I, in, in my heyday of watching Law and Order, loved Law and Order so much, right? Because there was never a scene in Law and Order that was like, "Hey, you know, when I was, you know, when I was a kid, I saw this terrible crime being committed, and and a person was killed, and that's what made me want to become a cop." Um, Right, like they just dispensed with all of that bullpucky, and the. Well, they, uh, they did that. I, I should correct you. They did that in the first season, and then they immediately got away from it. You know, I have not seen a lot of with Paul Servino and the other guy. I have not seen a lot of first season Law and Order. Gotta admit. Yeah, the the very first season they started doing that, and then I I think they realized that that was that was not working for them, and gradually moved away from that to the sort of procedural. Which I think is obviously to its strength. This has been going on for what 
25 years now, something like that. Yeah. It's gotten a little more touchy-feely this season, so they're, they're, they're letting more... You know, somebody has cancer, and, and I don't really care. That's not what I go for Law & Order for, is to see somebody go through chemo. Well, there were two... Um, there were two... Even that, though, they just kind of give the episodes. They don't have a ton of, like, meditation about it. Yeah. Uh, they, um... I mean, there were two television shows. One was CSI, and the other was Criminal Minds that came that I think altered the landscape, and Law and Order kind of had to had to respond to them. But um, oh, but sorry, uh, but you know, so okay, Batman Begins. Even the the line that I remember from uh, from Anthony Lane's discussion of this in the New Yorker was uh, was something along uh, the lines of Why must Batman begin? What's wrong with Batman is? You know, and this kind of obsession with going to the to the origin story, giving a backstory, I think, um, I think it betrays a kind of weak-minded, cycle quasi-psychological determinism that is ultimately bad storytelling. That's true. The Batman started from its very beginning, though. I mean, parents killed in the alley. It's true. Like he had episode or issue number three. Yeah, but not really, not really Wonka. You know, you know. Not really yeah. Wonka. Certainly. Well, uh, to Christopher Nolan's credit, I thought one of the very strong decisions he made in The Dark Knight was not to have a backstory for the Joker, which I don't think many people would have done. I mean, the. It, I, I think the default position is let's come up with a strong backstory for this for this villain uh-huh. that we're going to bring. Let's explain why he hates Spider-Man so much. And the Seems fact that Christopher Nolan's like, no, I don't care. He's just he's just who he is. Yeah. In fact, Christopher uh-huh. Nolan kind of made fun of that. Right. As the Joker tells three different backstories for himself. Right. Well, like, that's that's yeah, that's cool. That's I mean, and it's yeah. better. It works better. It's better storytelling. It's a more interesting movie, right? Yeah. Well, and I will say this: it's not by accident. Um, I do think that there is a conventional wisdom in Hollywood screenwriting that the audience feels like their lives don't have meaning and that by putting really, really forced purpose behind the actions of characters in movies, you will identify with this like adrift, pathetic audience that has no purpose in their lives and will comfort them. And like this is the drug that they crave from their movies that they go see. You I mean, have this a is choice, why... Pete. You have a choice. Yes. Everything is a prophecy or a destiny. <laughs> well, Pete, I don't is, have to conquer the world. That, Maybe like, I can just sit in this chair. What? Is what you're saying that if I don't because I don't have some horrific traumatic experience in my life, it's okay for me to be a schlub watching television about people who did? No, like, I think what the, the thing drug? say is that is, – no, the drug is that um, you feel that for whatever reason, your life doesn't have a purpose. True. Right? Uh, and this is most. This is probably because, in general, like the idea of purpose and life are somewhat irreconcilable a lot of the time. Um, and, and just so this is like one of the challenges of being alive and being an adult. And a lot of us experience this problem in adolescence. Like, oh, what does my life mean? And then you sort of give, get over it. Then we got um, into goth, and it was cool. Yeah. But it's very comforting to feel like things are happening for a reason, right? Whether it's true or not. And so then, I mean, I've read this in a couple of screenwriting books too, where it's like. Make it for a reason. And then when I think have somebody do something for a reason, I think so that the drama is motivated, so that the, uh, the sort of actions of the characters are, are, are more interesting and more involved. But no, I think that in Hollywood, the conventionalism is do it for a reason, provide a really strong reason, because it's trying to fill some sort of spiritual deficit. It's almost like a, a religious experience where you go for your, like, dose of reason. Like in uh, Blade Runner, when they all stick their hands in the box. Oh, sorry, in When Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the book that Blade Runner's based on, and all of humanity 
goes home and sticks their hands in a box and like feels the that feels through empathy the feelings of this like fictional character who goes through this sort of life and death rebirth cycle. Um, they're just craving this particular emotional reality, uh, which this, they don't encounter in their lives because they're so alienated from each other. Um, and we're so alienated from reason that the, that religion has largely left our lives in a lot of ways. And even for people who do have it, they, you know, active participation in it is challenging, and getting what you need out of it is challenging. Um, so we go to Hollywood to make us feel like our lives have meaning, and that's why the Mad Hatter has to do everything for a reason, because reason is, is something that ha- comes in doses. I, I have contempt for this idea. I hate this idea when I encounter it. I probably myself create this idea that it's on purpose so that I can like embody it and narrativize it and turn it into a villain and a cogent thing rather than a series of coincidences, but it just <laughs> seems to happen too frequently in movies that all the stars line up for things being so fiercely deterministic. Um, somebody I, must be going in and rewriting these movies after they've been written and making them so similar to each other. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make sense that so many different movies would tell the story in the exact it, same way. I okay. I'm going to. I'm going to offer. I'm going to offer my own take, which uh, will more no. so, somewhat diverge from what you're doing. I think a lot of the a lot of the current tendency towards backstory is something we're seeing in. I mean, all the examples we cited, Willy Wonka. Uh, someone brought up Hannibal Lecter in the in the chat earlier, which is which is a good example. Uh, Batman, Superman, for instance. I think a lot of these these deeply intensive backstories come up when a, when an existing character is revisited, and I, I think we can we can sort of trace that back to the the more successful. I don't think it all comes back to comics, but in a large part, it comes back to the successful comic book properties of the '80s that got rebooted uh, in DC in particular. Uh, <clears throat> You'll remember that, that a lot of the details of Batman's origin story were, were, weren't really laid out in the original character. Batman was just this guy who wanted to screw up criminals, and he dressed like a bat, and originally he carried a gun even back in the 30s. And this whole notion of, oh, I'm avenging my parents' death was only grafted on later when someone wanted to revisit the existing character and add more depth to it. Because when you have this really established media property, there's only so much you can do with it that's new that won't completely jeopardize the fan base. So people are saying, okay, we have this existing property like Willy Wonka or Batman. We can't go too out there or otherwise the fans will hate us. Uh, so what do we do? Let's go back. Let's go back to the past. Let's, let's tread safer ground and, and sort of hash that up. You see that in Star Wars. You see that in Batman. You see that in Superman. And and yeah, I think that's I think that's the or, the origin of it in its current incarnation. It's people people unwilling to take risks with existing media properties, and so treading on what is safe ground. So like they can't get married because that changes the the property too much. That's that happened with Spider Man, right? They ended up having to go back and like undo a lot of that because they didn't Un-made people them. didn't like it. Uh, the, yeah. most, <laughs> the most egregious example of what you're talking about has got to be Wolverine, right? Like the Probably. man of mystery, like he was cool for thirty years, and then they made the movie that told his yeah. backstory, and now you know he's really kind of worthless. <laughs> now, now he's some guy who was yeah. in Vietnam once. Yeah, he's just a Canadian. Yeah, I, mean, I, I tend to ascribe it um, the same phenomenon more to this idea that once we have Superman or Spider Man or Wolverine out there, uh, we don't really know what to do with him. Like we're sort of crushed by the possibility. Of telling a story about this character, except it's much easier to do it in the ter- in the form of a serial or a comic book, where you're not really being dependent upon to have a sort of definitive beginning, middle, and end to your story. Because you have to make another story every half hour, so you can just reboot everything, 
right? And, and like you can you can tell a whole bunch of Batman animated series stories. Um, you know, Justice League stories, and there's not a ton of pressure to pick one, uh, because and, and there's not a ton of pressure to worry about consequences because everything's going to be undone at the end of it and stuff. But a movie has has to have stand alone on, on, to a degree, and it has to say something. And and we're not comfortable with these characters existing in the world and, and doing things just because they want to. I mean, it's the power gives them too much freedom. So many movies are about people who have no freedom. Like romantic comedies, action movies. So many of these people, they don't really have the freedom to step outside of their situation. They're forced by circumstances to follow the, the steps that, are, that you have to follow. And part of this is the urgency of the movie and, and the, the demands of drama. But like, I think part of it is just like a fear of the freedom that comes with being an adult in the world. That was one of the reasons that Iron Man worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. like, was, he was such a just sort of a joyous, like, having fun. He had the money and the power and the freedom to do whatever he wanted, and he chose to do that. And it was, mm. like, one of the more sort of joyous movies of that genre you've seen in a long time. And, and, and keep people, in mind, yeah, totally there's something really affirming when somebody actually does find there. Yeah, that's going to be cool. I'm excited for it. And keep in mind, we're talking, about, we're talking about two different things here. We're talking about, first, how to tell a story. And second, how to sustain a franchise as a as a media property, which are two entirely different things. How to tell a story, uh, like stories have very recognizable arcs. Like there's the heroic journey of Joseph Campbell, where you know we have our young hero who departs his village to confront a threat, meets friends along the way, gains power, and then gains wisdom and, and maturity as well, and then comes back to the village with his boon and is either accepted or rejected, etc. Or we have I saw the that one. I know, right? Wasn't it great? <laughs> Uh, and, you know, we, we also have, you know, the standard boy meets girl, boy loses girl, etc. But those, those are arcs that change characters at the end. But the point, of a, the point of an existing media franchise is that it can't change too much or else you're going to run out of, you're going you're gonna to run out of things to do with it. Like the point of a media franchise is to keep generating income for the franchise holders for as long as possible. And so there's only so many microscopic iterations you can take it in. I think it, it's it's one of the reasons why in com- I hate to bring it back to comic books again, but why you know Marvel and DC do complete you know reboots of their universe every fifteen to twenty years because there's just so much accumulated continuity that oh crap we're losing new readers let's collapse all the multiverses into each other and have Superboy Prime punch space or something and then uh, and Green Lantern blow up capitals or That's coastal really city and then is that what uh, okay. Yeah, both those things happen. <laughs> not, in, not in real life. <laughs> <laughs> or so you think, Pete. Yeah. Or yeah. you can have Onslaught, because f*** you guys. That's why you have Onslaught. <laughs> Screw you all. <laughs> Sorry, I, have a, I hate Onslaught, so uh, I apologize for we that. that. That's Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mostly because I'm a big Juggernaut fan, and, uh, and the Onslaught, the Juggernaut got retconned out of existence, basically. Not really, but like... Uh, they introduced Onslaught by having him like throw the Juggernaut involuntarily a long distance, which like runs counter to the one thing about the character that is always true, which is that he is pretty capable of determining his own direction and velocity. Yeah. Um, Pete, has but, it ever been determined what happens when the Juggernaut fights the Blob? When the Juggernaut fights the Blob? Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> that, that, has actually, that has actually been determined. I think it's uh, Chris Sims' Invincible Super blog that actually asked that, found the issue that answered that question. I I forget off the I forget off the top of my head. Uh, also, a uh, pop intellect in the chat window is reminding me that that cyborg Superman destroyed Coast City. Green Lantern actually 
uh, nearly destroyed the universe trying to, I think, recreate a universe that had Coast City in it. Uh, that, am that I, was zero, I correct on this right? right? He became Parallax. That's yes, the, yeah. he became Parallax. Yeah. yeah. Now that, was I'm getting issues, my, that was where the issues counted down to zero instead of going yes. up, right? Now I'm getting my mid-90s multi-universe comic book crossovers, correct? Thank <laughs> like okay, so if let me let let me take this conversation to to another level. Then, if we're talking about characters who have freedom in uh, in the world, right, and a character who could be free to actually choose to do what they want to do, who happens to have superpowers, how awesome is Future Imperfect? Do you guys know Future Imperfect? Matt gave me this comic book. Um, this is the one where we cut to a dystopian future, where the it's an Incredible Hulk comic book. Where oh, yeah, the yeah. yeah, where the Incredible Hulk, like by virtue of being one of the only people to survive the nuclear holocaust because of his like irradiated nature, um, carves out his own city in the wasteland and like proclaims himself emperor over it. He's got a beard, uh, as, like, right? He's a big beard and he has like a harem and stuff. And right. it's like this is like how the Hulk would make the world. Uh, and it, everybody has mohawks and it's kind of this like weird Middle Eastern bazaar and like. Uh, and he's very cynical. But this is, of course, Professor Hulk, so it's not really about the character of the Hulk. It's, it's like um, Mad Max, but instead of Tina Turner, there's the Hulk. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And I think it's like once you raise the stakes that high, you know, and you say, well, what would this character do if they actually had total freedom? Uh, it, that, it's probably going to be something pretty extreme. Unless you're dealing with somebody like The Thing who has very small dreams. Um, what, what just like one pastrami sandwich. Guys, just just so you know, uh, I, I couldn't find a definitive answer to Juggernaut versus the Blob, but I am now pasting into the chat room uh, answers.yahoo.com's answer to what would happen if the Juggernaut fought the Blob. I'll, I'll also paste it into uh, our own our own back window here, so oh, so the we, overthinkers can uh, can go visit it I mean, and, and see and see the definitive source of. Uh, of, of right. Marvel Comics. And for those of you who don't have any idea what this all means, the deal with the Juggernaut is he uh, supposedly cannot be stopped. And the deal with the Blob is he supposedly cannot be moved. So you could yeah. see how those two would, would have uh, issues to but, work but out. The, but the thing is, the Blob is a mutant, and he has a certain amount of mutant power over his center of gravity. But the Juggernaut is like the incarnation of an ancient Korean evil god right, of some he comes sort. comes out of the Korean War, right? Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like it's like they find a gem and like a shrine He's that they X's hide. Brother, from. right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, yeah, they're evil half brothers, I mean, and they're in the been, That's together. been retconned many, many times. Oh since yeah, the beginning. yeah, yeah. But like full on power juggernaut would probably like rupture the blog, I would say. But they always have to depower the juggernaut because they want him to do all sorts of stuff other than just show up every once in a while and be this insolvable problem. Um, you know, like, and the way that you stop him is you take his hat off and you zap his brain with telepathy or something, and that's how you stop him. It's not a his hat, hat, it's a lot. helmet. <laughs> it's a hat. It's like a little dome <laughs> hat. It's got little eye holes in it. It's like a ski mask it's made a, out of red helm. tin. What's but, the difference uh, between a helm and a helmet? <laughs> a helm and a helmet? There, there, is, there is no difference. Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure? A helmet isn't like a small helmet. Like a helmet. <laughs> A helmissimo? Is there like a, a, a helm? Is there a female helm? A, hel- a helma? No, I guess not. Um, there's a helm youth, but that's something entirely different. He plays poker. So if you if you had to choose, would you wear a helm or a helmet? If I if I <laughs> now that choose, would I wear a helm or a helmet? I would wear a cowl. A cowl. <laughs> <laughs> Can I get away with that? Or is that not a, I think, you know, that I think that's a correct solid answer. I would say, would you wear a cape and cowl or just cowl? Well, the cape is, is <laughs> if, if um, cartoons and comic books has taught me one thing, the cape is bad news. 
Capes are bad news. Yeah, it gets stuck in a door and you get shot or it gets sucked yeah. into a, a jet intake. Yeah. <laughs> that would be unfortunate. Definitely. You know you know what else would be unfortunate? Yeah. You like that? <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> you know what else would be unfortunate? If we uh, if we carried this subject past the point of everyone's being interested in it. Yeah, we wouldn't want to overthink <laughs> something. That's okay, because we can we can retcon this entire universe. It's Look, I've been asleep at the bottom of the Long Island South this whole time, and it's been an alien on this podcast talking to you with mental powers from Shi'ar Empire. <laughs> So I think we will leave the show there for the week. Uh, you know what to do. If you have anything that you would like to say about, oh, God, what did we talk about this time? About uh, uh, gimmicks in movies, about 3D, about Alice in Wonderland, about... We did like 10 minutes on CinemaScope. <laughs> about the... Sorry. I actually... I like... The way these guys know comics, I know, you know, film formats, and I really geek out about this crap. <laughs> I really, yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a big okay. dork about it. It's okay. Uh, no, yeah, this is a safe space for nerdery. Um, so, uh, so yeah, despite despite its being despite its being somewhat shorter than our shows, I, I'm I'm one that thinks that our our 15 minute shows are too long. So we're um, uh, we're gonna leave the the recording there. But if you have anything you want to say about any of that stuff. Email us at podcastedoverthinkingit.com or call the voicemail at 20 eat log one That's 203-285-6401. You can also use the contact form on the site or leave a comment on the show notes to talk with your fellow Overthinking It uh, audience members. Remember that we do this show live now, uh, Sundays at 9.15 Eastern, 6.15 Pacific. You can find us on Ustream, U-S-T-R-E-A-M dot TV. If you uh, search for the Overthinking It podcast, there's also links in the show notes. And uh, and what am I what am I leaving out? Mountain time. <laughs> right. oh, yeah, I know. Mountain time always gets left out. What is it about Mountain Time, right? It's always like uh, nine, eight central. Well, they don't have internet access out there, right? I guess so. It's like way in the frontier. It's hard to run the cables up into the mountains. That's right. The coyotes eat through them. <laughs> yeah, out in the out in the wilderness that is Indianapolis. <laughs> uh <laughs> so you know, <laughs> I'll be back on the left coast for uh, for the next show. But this has been a fantastic uh, this has been a fantastic video experiment. We're gonna stick around uh, in the chat room, and once we stop recording, we're gonna answer questions and swear a lot. Because, we are gonna swear yeah, a lot because we can't do that. Um, yeah, <laughs> and uh, and you might get to meet our girlfriends who have been sitting off camera this way the whole time. <laughs> but those of you who don't watch the live stream don't get to meet our girlfriends. So come uh, come watch the live uh, come watch the live stream, right? And okay, if you don't watch the live stream, the least you can do is visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Was brillig, and there was a prophecy that you had to fight it at the end of the movie. You can still. Thank you, Kitty Kitty 3. <laughs> <laughs>